Welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and I will be your host, as always, into this next episode on this series of technocracy and looking at technocracy through various allusions to kind of classic writings and things that should be fairly well known, at least. This example that comes up today is one that probably is the most referenced out of all of them that I will talk about in this series, and that is 1984, the book written by Orwell, and it definitely describes a lot of what we're going on through today. But like I did with Machiavelli's The Prince in the previous episode, I am going to specifically focus on how this relates to technocracy in the context of what I've been kind of leading up to through really all the way through this whole podcast as a whole, but definitely in season three and the end of season two, and talking about what the technocracy is and how it plays out and how it affects us, how we can see it, what are some aspects that are in existence right now, and what are some that are coming. And so that's kind of the context and the perspective that I'll be coming from. And so that will be this episode, I think. I was uh, thinking that I would do Machiavelli's The Prince and 1984 last episode. Obviously, if you have listened, and you should have, and if not, go back and listen to that first. But I did not get to 1984. I only covered The Prince. So I'm going to assume at the beginning of this recording that I will probably only get to 1984. But we will see, and it will just depend on how things go. So as with most of these writings that I'll be covering, I'm not going to give you an overview. I'm not going to give a plot summary. That is not the point of this. If you have not read the book, then at least uh, read over a summary or something. Look it up on Wikipedia. Uh, I would recommend just reading it. Most of all of these that I'm covering, possibly every one of them, are fairly short So it's not a long read. It is a very good and entertaining book, and I would highly recommend it. So assuming that you have read it, or you at least know a lot about it, that is where I am coming from as I go from here. So to pick out the specific aspects that I have noted as I went through the book related to technocracy, we'll start off with the technocracy itself. The representation of the technocracy in 1984 is identified as the party. And the party is in control of basically everything. It's not a governance system like we know of today. And a technocracy is kind of the same way. It is a system that controls everything, but it is not necessarily something like a monarchy or a democracy or anything like this. It is a system that focuses on resources and information and controlling the population underneath it. And again, this is what technocracy is as well. There are these references to before the party, and uh, people have a hard time remembering what it was like before the party, even though there were some people that were alive before the party gained dominance and took control, but people have a hard time even remembering what that was like. And most of the people that would have remembered and would have thought fondly on those days are probably gone now thanks to the Ministry of Truth. And we can get there too. But the 
this idea and this concept of the, the time period before being something that is so remote and so distant that people don't even really make a connection there in their mind. There is no real mental mental connection to the past. This is similar to what we have today with the time before the internet, for example. A lot of people, even those that did not have the internet when they were first born and as they grew up as kids, they have a hard time remembering what it was like. And even even though in their minds, a lot of people think, well, of course, I remember when I was a kid and we didn't have the internet. We were fine. We did XYZ and played outside and all this stuff. But when it comes down to everyday life, there isn't really this recognition of how different things really are when you're just making a phone call on your cell phone or sending a text message. When I was a kid, there weren't even text messages, but I don't think of that when I send a text message today or when I pull up the internet on my phone and do something that didn't exist when I was young. I I remember that and I'm not all that old. And so there are plenty of people in generations that were around and even grew up and were adults in a time period before the internet Yet today, as they interact with the world and do their everyday things, most people don't even think about how it was without this stuff or how it would be if they did not have this technology at their fingertips today. And so that's kind of an example. It's definitely not the same, but it's a shadow of what is being talked about in 1984 with the party and the time before the party. Now, what I will say is that once you have a strong technocracy. And once that actually is a dominant force and governance system that is in effect, then I think we will have even more of this aspect of before and after the party and people not even really remembering or thinking about what it was like before and going all in on the way things are now. But I I think the internet is a, a good example, at least a good parallel to this aspect. And with the party being in charge, there is this strange milieu in that the party is a big system, a big bureaucracy, one in which people are just a part of, and they don't even necessarily uh, fit in in the way that people think of it today. It's not like, oh, I'm a senator, or this is the governor, or this is the mayor. We have certain people with identifiable roles that were elected in a certain way or nominated in a certain way. That's how they got their position, and it's pretty clear and straightforward. The technocracy is kind of like that in that people do have positions, they do have jobs, they do have roles to play, but it's just as being a part of the party. It's uh, a lot of people, it seems, you get the idea and the impression that a lot of people don't even know how they got picked for the job or how they got hired or who chooses who does what role and when promotions get granted and when they don't and these kinds of things. The system perpetuates itself. It's a lot more of a Kaczynski-type system, the technological system, and uh, that's what's going on. And that is much more similar to a technocracy, especially technocracy in the early stages like it is today, it's not necessarily that people are actively and knowingly taking part and pushing forward this this agenda of technocracy. Now, there are some that are, and I read plenty of quotes of very 
influential people that are pushing towards that and want society to go that way and have been very effective in pushing things in that direction. But I'm not saying that uh, Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or someone like that is actively and knowingly and purposefully trying to push us into a system of technocracy, even though I would say that these tech entrepreneurs are some of the leaders of the current version of technocracy that we have today. There is instead a system, a technological system, that is taking form that has become fairly concrete since the advent of the internet and the startup of all of these tech entrepreneurs and these tech platforms and this data gathering uh, information ability that we have with today's technology, this has all created the framework for the technocracy. And there are individuals that are involved with this and playing certain roles. But again, it's not necessarily that the technocracy has this one head and it's got this certain order of the bureaucracy and the specific hierarchy and all these things. No, that's not really how it works. Right now, we just have this technological system, so to say. It's, um, in a sense, like the infancy of the technocracy. It hasn't taken its full effect yet. And in that way, I would say we are prior to 1984. In 1984, the party is in full control, and it is fully taking control of everything, runs everything, whereas today, the technocracy is, I would not say at least, is in full control, although we are getting pretty close. I think that there will definitely be a time when the technocracy is more organized and more hierarchical and more identifiable. I think that is where we're headed. I, I don't think that the way that things are today are just going to continue without some sort of more formal structure. I think that that is coming, that is at least my personal opinion. Now, looking at the formal structure of the party in 1984, you've got these different ministries they're known as. You have the Ministry of Truth, the Ministry of Peace, the Ministry of Plenty, and the Ministry of Love. And they all have different roles, and it's kind of like some aspects that I have talked about a lot in the past, I guess, few months or year or a little more, but this aspect of changing the definition of things, that is something that has been going on very much lately, especially in the post-COVID world. Uh, for example, the definition of what a pandemic was, was changed prior to COVID-19, it used to be that there had to be an influx of overall deaths worldwide before something was labeled as a pandemic. And then that definition was changed so that there did not have to be excess deaths in order for something to be labeled as a pandemic. And for those that have kept up with these statistics, at least when COVID started, the first year, I think the first two years, uh, so far as I know, I haven't checked the most recent stats that could have changed, but at least within the first year of COVID, uh, well after they labeled it a pandemic, the overall uh, death numbers worldwide were not statistically out of the normal range of every other recent year. There was not a large excess number of deaths. And so it would not have fit that definition of pandemic prior to changing that definition of what a pandemic is. There has been a similar changing of definitions when it comes to the word vaccine. 
Now, at one time, a vaccine was defined. And at one time, when I say at one time, that was less than a year before right now when I'm recording this episode. So this wasn't a long time ago or anything. This was recent. You could count it in months. And so when this had not been changed yet, a vaccine was something that had a part of a virus in it that would stop somebody from catching that virus. That was, I forget the actual specific wording, but that was basically what it says. Those were the two components that it had a part of the virus itself, whether dead or alive, and it would help the person become inoculated against catching that virus. And that is what, by definition, a vaccine was. Now, that did change so that uh, it did not necessarily have to have a piece of the virus in it to be considered a vaccine. And with mRNA technology and things like this, as we get into gene therapy and DNA manipulation, then you could get similar effects without actually using the virus itself. So that does kind of make sense. Um, But that was a definition change. And then the other change was that it's no longer that a vaccine keeps someone from catching the virus. It's that it could also help someone with the symptoms of the virus. And so with the current vaccine rollout, the mRNA vaccines, at least especially, um, those ones for COVID-19, number one, do not have a part of the virus in them. And number two, do not keep people from catching it. So they would not have fit the old definition, but under the new definition of just helping with symptoms, and that being about it, then yes, they do fit that definition. Outside of the COVID milieu, there are many other examples. I've talked about a lot of them before, such as uh, gender is something that the definition has changed from being a biological matter to not, to being a psychological matter in a sense. There are old episodes of Bill Nye the Science Guy talking about what it means to be male or female, and he uses the biological definitions of these as they were at the time of him making those videos. And now he says something very different, and those videos have mostly been scrubbed. So that is kind of interesting. But that is one example. You've got so many others of things that used to be considered one thing, but now they are something totally different. And that is what's going on here in 1984 as well, where the Ministry of Truth is actually a department that is uh, specifically focused on controlling the narrative, on the flow of information. This is the media. They control the newspapers and the news outlets and these things. This is what the Ministry of Truth does. And it's not necessarily that they are defending truth as we would define it, but instead they are basically uh, coming from this perspective that the truth is what the party says the truth is. And the truth is whatever is, quote, best for all of society. That these things should sound pretty familiar as far as concepts are concerned. Now, with this, the Ministry of Truth is then focused on preserving this definition of truth, which is different than what you would think or I would think, that truth is something that is true uh, as opposed to something that is false. 
But no, truth is something that fits the narrative. Truth is something that is what it should be, by the definition of the party at least. So that is the ministry of truth. And that should sound pretty familiar when we talk about the aspects of technocracy in existence today, where you have these big tech platforms that are censoring certain people, they're promoting other content, they're pushing certain narratives, and they are not pushing others. Now, I've talked a lot about some other examples of this in the past. You had J.P. Morgan, who bought up a bunch of the most influential newspapers in the U.S. in order to change public sentiment in regards to the war that was going on at the time. That's an older example. You also have Project Mockingbird, where the CIA had agents in a lot of the most prominent uh, news sources. And this was more a video format, not necessarily newspapers, but like newscasts that went on TV. And the CIA agents were pushing certain narratives and certain stories. And some were actually newscasters and these types of things. So again, it was this idea of influencing things through controlling the flow of information and pushing certain narratives out there and controlling those narratives. By the way, the CIA was also the one that coined the term conspiracy and conspiracy theorist and conspiracy theory. Um, these were not necessarily words that didn't exist beforehand, but the way that we define them today came from an, a, a CIA operation where they wanted to discredit people that were coming out with information that some might consider truth, but it didn't fit the truth of the narrative, at least. And usually this was involved with the corruption that was going on in the government and specifically with the CIA and some of the things that they were doing, such as the MKUltra experiments and things like that. And so what they did is they uh, made this big push and they pushed out this narrative that conspiracy theories are these crazy whack jobs that don't know what they're talking about, spouting forth all of this nonsense and all of this kind of stuff. And so uh, that was, again, something to control the narrative, to control the flow of information through changing definitions and things of that nature. So yes, this is all stuff that goes on today currently, without a doubt. But we do not have a ministry of truth that is as, again, as structured and organized as the party, so to say. Now, at the same time, it, it is interesting and it is relevant how when someone gets canceled on, let's say, YouTube, they within typically within a day, usually within just a few hours, they get kicked off multiple platforms. It's usually off of YouTube. It is off of Twitter. It is off of Facebook. It is off of all of these mainstream outlets all of these aspects of the media or of the internet or of the technocracy, however you want to say that. And this is, in some way, some sort of uh, organized matter. And I don't know how to say that very well, because I don't know how this works. I don't know if there are certain people that are in positions that influence actively this process, or if it's just the individual companies that decide, hey, it's going to be bad PR if we leave this person on their on our platform when they're being so controversial on this video they put up on a different platform. Let's go ahead and just be safe and kick them off. Or it could be that they conspire together in some way and do it all together, or just share information or whatever. So again, I'm not sure if our version of the Ministry of Truth is all that organized. And 
um, something that is very formal, or if it is, again, just the technological system, the system perpetuating itself. You have this aspect of the Church of Woke that has a lot of power in this regard and uh, does steer things in a lot of ways when you talk about political correctness and things of this nature, that's usually what pushes the censorship or the narrative control, things like this. The Church of Woke is uh, often a big influencer in that. But for some reason, and in some way, we do have an active representation of the ministry of truth going on in today's world. Now, the next ministry is the ministry of peace. And what does the ministry of peace handle? Well, they handle war, of course, because uh, everything's opposites, because we live in clown world. And uh, as you should know, we are currently living in an inverted world where what used to be good is now bad. What used to be bad is now good. These types of things. I've talked about that before as well. You can go to someone like Jonathan Paggio for more information on uh, that perspective, the uh, symbolic aspects of that. But uh, just from a basic perspective, look at morality it used to be considered good. And when I say used to be, just a few decades ago, this wasn't like hundreds of years ago, just a few decades ago, uh, it used to be a good thing to be a stay-at-home mom and take care of your kids and take care of your household and be a housewife. That used to be uh, looked upon as a very positive thing. It used to be a good thing to uh, make sure that you are uh, the gender that you were born as and that you were attracted to and had a relationship and got married to someone of the opposite gender. That was a good thing. And if you did not do that, if you went outside of that norm, that was considered bad or immoral. And so many other examples of uh, the way things have flipped. Now, it's the opposite. If you are a housewife, from at least the perspective of mainstream, the mainstream culture today, it's not everyone, of course, but in general, that is viewed with a, a negative connotation that uh, the woman is being held down by the patriarchy or something of that nature. And this is a, a negative thing. And I talked about, I think in the episode that I did on the influential books, I forget what that was, but it was at the very beginning of the Corruption and Conspiracy series I did back in season one. Um, I talked about a specific book and author that really helped to perpetuate that idea specifically. But that is something that has changed. And so now what used to be considered bad, let's say homosexuality, that was considered bad. And whether whether you consider it moral or immoral or neither, it really doesn't matter. That's not what I'm talking about. I am personally not making a value judgment. But what I am saying is that culturally, that was considered a negative thing, a bad thing, an immoral thing. Now, culturally today, that is often lauded as a very positive thing, as something that should be celebrated, that you should have pride in your homosexuality, that whole aspect of gay pride, these types of things. So in a lot of ways, the modern culture views that as a positive thing, whereas just a few decades ago, that was viewed by the majority of the culture as a negative thing, because things have been inverted. And again, that's not that, yeah, we're not going to get into value judgments on any of these things, but there has been an inversion. And in 1984, this is extremely clear that things have been so inverted. And um, in 1984, though, it is all about perception. And some might argue that in today's world, it is also a matter of perception and not reality. I talked a lot about that in previous episodes, too. But with the Ministry of Peace, 
This is the war machine. This is who handles warfare. And warfare is very interesting. Warfare never ends. They're always at war with somebody. And even though that somebody seems to change every now and then, um, it is not actually talked about as far as that change. It's this aspect of, oh, now we're at war with East Asia, whereas we used to be at war with somebody else. Well, then as soon as this happens, this gets put out there on all of the uh, basically all of the platforms that the Ministry of Truth is in control of, and there are all these articles and commentaries and things like this about the war with East Asia. And the general public, even though just the day before, the as far as the general public knew, we were not at war with East Asia. They used to be our allies. We used to be at war with somebody else. But as of today, now we are at war with East Asia, and the public just takes it as being truth and as being factual. It's, oh, we're at war with East Asia. Of course, we've always been at war with East Asia. That's what they think in their heads, because anything the Ministry of Truth puts out, of course, is truth. And if there's some sort of conflict in your head and in your memory, it's a problem with you. It's not a problem with the system. And again, those who have contradicted that in the past or uh, start to make a fuss about it or are public about their opinions that, oh, hey, we were not at war with them yesterday. This, this Something's funky here. What's going on? If you were to question that, then that's where the ministry of love comes into play. And we'll get to that in a second. But um, yes, those people get weeded out pretty efficiently and effectively. And so the ministry of peace, again, is focused on war. Now, in today's world, if you look at the United States, we used to have the Department of War. That used to be what it was. But uh, that got changed. The name got changed, at least, to the Department of Defense. And that was all about defense. But uh, by definition, defense is when you are protecting yourself, defending yourself from an aggression from someone else, from an outside source. That is defense. Whereas the Department of Defense in today's world has a lot to do with offensive warfare. And this is, again, a difference in definitions. It's a difference in meaning. That's like saying the Ministry of Peace, which is really in charge of war, the Department of Defense, which is really in charge of offensive maneuvers, those are actually opposites. So um, yes, these types of things do exist in today's world. Um, The next ministry is the Ministry of Plenty. And the Ministry of Plenty is basically in charge of restricting the allocation of resources and managing this allocation. Now, as I've talked about a lot with what technocracy is, a lot of what technocracy is, is about handling the allocation of resources, the distribution of resources. It's a system that does this effectively and efficiently for a mass population, for a large society. And in 1984, you only have, I think, three large conglomerates of the population, so to say, of East Asia, and I really forget the other two. Ingsoc, I think, is the main one, and I forget what the third one is, but there are these three conglomerates, and that's very similar to the idea of technocracy as it was discussed back in the 30s of having these large technates that were often entire continents and regions with a few other areas brought in. So it's something like the fact that 
North America was viewed as being the perfect candidate for a technate, that all of North America would be one technate, would be one entity, so to say, and that might even expand to all of South America as well. And so it's this idea of a technate being this large area, and it's not necessarily countries, but it's something bigger than that. And the main purpose is to manage resources. That's the main thing. It's not about politics, so to say, it is more about resources. And in 1984, there is a specific department, a specific ministry that handles this. This is the Ministry of Plenty. Now, there is an example, and again, I forget the details, so forgive me, but if you've read it or when you do read it, you will know the exact details. And I do not right now off the top of my head. But um, there is an example in 1984 where the rations for chocolate get changed. And it's an example both of the Ministry of Plenty and the Ministry of Truth. So let me just read. It's just a few paragraphs. I'll just go ahead and read them all just to give you an example of what the main character's job was, Winston. He operated in the Ministry of Truth and how they handled information and how the uh, Ministry of Plenty really worked. And so let's just start off here at the beginning. And this is from 1984, quote, The Times of the 19th of December had published the official forecasts for the output of various classes of consumption goods in the fourth quarter of 1983, which was also the sixth quarter of the ninth three-year plan. Today's issue contained a statement of the actual output from which it appeared that the forecasts were in every instance grossly wrong. Winston's job was to rectify the original figures by making them agree with the later ones. As for the third message, it referred to a very simple error which could be set right in a couple of minutes. As short a time ago as February, the Ministry of Plenty had issued a promise— a categorical pledge, were the official words, that there would be no reduction of chocolate ration during 1984. Actually, as Winston was aware, the chocolate ration was to be reduced from 30 grams to 20 at the end of the present week. All that was needed was to substitute for the original promise a warning that it would probably be necessary to reduce the ration at some time in April. But actually, he thought as he readjusted the Ministry of Plenty's figures, it was not even forgery. It was merely the substitution of one piece of nonsense for another. Most of the material that you were dealing with had no connection with anything in the real world, not even the kind of connection that it is contained in a direct lie. Statistics were just as much a fantasy in their original version as in their rectified version. A great deal of the time, you were expected to make them up out of your head. For example, the Ministry of Plenty's forecast had estimated the output of boots for the quarter at 145 million pairs. The actual output was given as 62 millions. Winston, however, in rewriting the forecast, marked the figure down to 57 millions as to allow for the usual claim that the quota had been overfulfilled. In any case, 62 millions was no nearer the truth than 57 millions or than 145 millions. Very likely, no boots had been produced at all. 
Likelier still, nobody knew how many had been produced, much less cared. All one knew was that every quarter, astronomical numbers of boots were produced on paper, while perhaps half the population of Oceana went barefoot. And so it was with every class of recorded fact, great or small. Everything faded away into a shadow world in which, finally, even the date of the year had become uncertain. So that's the end of the quote there. I thought it was kind of interesting in a few ways where Winston's job is actually to go back and, in a sense, rewrite history. We have seen many examples of that with actual history books, but uh, the same has been true of the internet, where articles that had been written go back and get changed. I mentioned the example of, oh, I forget her name, Ellen Page, who is now no longer uh, describing herself, itself, himself, whatever, as Ellen Page anymore. It's a different name because she changed her gender and now identifies as something different. And in response to this, I think it was Netflix, went back and changed her name in all of her previous showings where she played a role. She was an actress in other shows and movies, and her name was then back-changed in those previous ones to match what her new name and her new identification were in the present time. And that's obviously what Winston does here, where he goes back, um, for example, with chocolate, he goes back to uh, a previous announcement that there would be no lowering of the chocolate ration in all of 1984, and just changes that to say, there will likely be a need to lower the ration in April. And so since he knows that in the coming month or two, the ration will get lowered, then if someone goes back and looks at the previous forecast, they can see that they had expected that it would be lowered. So everything agrees. That's what they do. This is the same as what happens today with the control of the narrative in the current media. Now, when you look at some of these other examples, especially later on when he talks about how, in reality, still nobody knew how many had been produced when he was talking about the boots. All, all that you know is that on paper, and when you hear the output, astronomical numbers of boots were produced, but perhaps half the population went barefoot. And so, regardless of what the narrative says, uh, you're playing perspective of the world. When you look around you, you can see that, well, something's not matching up here. But for most people, that doesn't click because they know that what is put out is true. And they believe the media, they believe the reports, they believe the data, the information, they believe what they're told, they believe the narrative. And so even if they see personally contradiction to the narrative in their real life, they still follow the narrative. And the problem must be them. It's, oh, well, even though I see something different, even though my perspective doesn't match up with what they're saying is really happening, I I'm sure that's just me. I'm sure for other people, you know, they're really seeing this, and this is such a big deal, and so on and so forth. And again, COVID's the easy example for everything in today's world, but this uh, can be seen in other ways. COVID is just an example where we finally see all of this come together with the technology and the techno 
um, the technological capability of actually implementing a lot of these concepts, which did not really exist before. So like I mentioned with JP Morgan buying out newspapers, there's only so much you can control by controlling articles in newspapers. And Project Mockingbird going on for um, controlling newscasts. Well, again, there's only so much you can control with that. With big tech today... When you control the advertisements, you control the content that someone sees, you control how someone feels. Facebook has done studies where they have proven that they can change someone's emotional state based on what they show them, what they promote, what they hide, these types of things. So uh, they can control literally your emotions. They control what you believe. They control what you see. And um, although we, me, and probably most of my listeners would agree that they can't necessarily control what you believe, they do it in a way that you are not aware of. So if you are shown certain information, you're triggered on certain areas, you're steered in certain directions, then they're pushing you along that line. Now, they can't force you to believe something, but they can make your perception of the world fit a certain set of data, a a certain narrative. And if everything you see, you read, you hear, all of that fits with one narrative, then you're probably going to believe the one narrative. And that just makes sense. And then when you see the contradictions to the narrative, your cognitive dissonance kicks in and you reject those minor differences because you're so strongly focused on the narrative. And again, like Winston says, in the end, all of it's usually made up. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't mean anything. It's basically just a way to control the narrative. That's all it is. It's a narrative. And it has nothing to do with actual production numbers or anything else of the sort. And the same has been true with COVID stats, where when everything first started, you were seeing the numbers related to hospitalizations and deaths. But then again, like I mentioned before, there wasn't an overall rise in deaths. And so that that was a bit of a contradiction to the fact that everybody's dropping dead. And there were pictures from China early on where there were just bodies piled up in the streets and it was just crazy. This was going to be apocalyptic. Well, then they changed it to case numbers. And that's what really got promoted. And that was kind of after flu season was done. Um, we kicked into spring, summertime, that kind of thing. This would have been last year or uh, previous in our current year in 2021, probably about the middle of the year. And the big focus was on cases. And so, oh, there are so many cases. And some people called it a case-demic, where it wasn't necessarily about hospitalizations or deaths. It was now just about cases. There are so many people that had it. Well, then again, some of that was an issue of change definitions, where you were considered to have COVID to be a positive case if you uh, met certain criteria that were very vague. The CDC changed um, the way they defined a case and a positive case as being something where you matched, I think it was at least three of the listed symptoms for COVID. And those range from a headache to a cough to nausea to uh, visiting a, a uh, highly COVID positive region recently, um, all kinds of things. And as long as you mark three of them, so basically if you're sick in any way, then the hospital could mark you down as a positive COVID case. 
And the same would be true if you, for example, died in a car wreck, but then they tested you and you're positive for COVID, you'd get marked down as COVID death. And so a lot of these definitions did change. They didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, But again, it's because it really didn't matter. That wasn't really the focus. The focus was on matching the numbers to the narrative. The narrative was that this was a huge deal and wiping out all kinds of people. Be scared. Stay in your home. Obey what you're told. Trust the experts. That's the narrative. And the stats were uh, given in a way that matched that narrative. And anything that conflicted the narrative would uh, be retroactively changed oftentimes. And you've got uh, Dr. Fauci as a very good example of this, where early on in the pandemic, he said that you don't need to wear a mask, that that doesn't really do much. And then he came out and said, well, actually, you really do need to wear a mask. The only reason I said that was because there was a shortage. We wanted to make sure that the frontline staff did get masks and were protected. And so he changed his tune there. And then later on, he said, well, actually, you should wear two masks because uh, that's really going to make you safe. One mask wasn't quite enough. You should wear two. And then it came out that there were emails that he had sent to other coworkers uh, at the same time when he was saying that everyone should now wear a mask in public places. And in the emails, he was telling them, oh, don't worry about a mask. It doesn't do anything. Uh, surgical mask, cloth mask, they're not really effective. They don't stop viruses. So there's really no point. Well, he was writing that in an email to a coworker at the same time as telling all of America and likely a lot of the world that, oh, you need to wear a mask anytime you're in public and or else you're just not going to be safe. Well, obviously, he believed the opposite. But yeah, they contradict. But again, changing of definitions, it's changing the uh, empirical facts to fit the narrative. Uh, In reality, surgical masks and cloth masks are not designed in a way to statistically change your chances of transmitting or catching COVID, uh, a virus in general, flu-like virus. That is not what they are for. That's not what they do. Uh, An N95 mask, properly fitted, yes, if you are concerned and you definitely want to protect yourself, then a properly fitted N95 would be the way to go. And that statistically does increase your chances of not catching it or not spreading it. But a cloth or a surgical mask, not necessarily in at least most of the studies that have been done prior and post COVID. But again, this all just goes back to this idea of controlling the narrative. And when you get to the Ministry of Plenty is what we're talking about. And it seems like everything always goes all the way back to the Ministry of Truth. <laughs> that's that's always the foundation for everything. But um, the Ministry of Plenty is what we were originally talking about here. And with that, it's all about controlling resources. Now, with controlling resources, you also have to control the narrative. And so if there is going to be a shortage of something, well, you have to be able to blame that shortage on something. And you blame it on something that fits with the narrative. So there have been plenty of shortages that might not necessarily have to do with COVID per se, but oh, it's COVID. That's that's a problem. And it might be that it was the responses to COVID that were not necessarily warranted, warranted and a certain uh, region declared certain stipulations and regulations. And because of this, that caused shortages. But we're just going to blame the virus because, uh, yeah, that's what we do. And so uh, this aspect of 
of uh, controlling resources and the numbers for resources and what people are told about the allocation of resources, uh, it's all going to be focused back on the narrative because that is the main thing. Now, the final ministry is the Ministry of Love. This is where the thought police come from. The Ministry of Love is all about uh, basically taking out dissidents. So if you are not loving towards the other party members, which is anybody, then you need to be re-educated, so to say. And so the goal here is, uh, like what Machiavelli said, like what Plato says, it's all about order. It's all about peace and love and plenty and truth even though it's not, by definition, any of these things. By their definition, it is. And so order is good, chaos is bad. So if you are not in line with the narrative, not in line with the party, if you have any kind of dissent, then that is bad. That is more related to chaos than it is to order. Even if the order you're supposed to be a part of is a complete lie and is detrimental to the humans that are a part of it, you still should be in line with it because that is order and we don't want chaos. So that is what you do. And the Ministry of Love will make sure that that is the case. So when there are dissidents, when there is anything, then the Ministry of Love finds out, whether it be by watching and monitoring or getting in reports, uh, whatever the case may be. So everyone has this screen in their house, uh, basically like a TV, and it goes both ways where they can watch you as well as you can watch things on it. So that's how they get all their propaganda out. For the most part, they also monitor people and monitor uh, not even just what they say or what they do, but also their expressions, maybe how they react to a certain thing that they see on the screen, which is also something that can be done today. Plenty of studies have been done with that, with watching people through cameras that are on things like smart TVs and smartphones and things like that. And they can watch your reactions to information that you hear, you see, uh, you listen to, and they can tell how you are responding to that information without having anything except for just the video of how you're responding, your facial reactions. So that is also something that does get done. But when a red flag gets thrown, when someone does have a negative reaction to, let's say, the party putting out some positive news, well, that's questionable. That seems like you might not be completely loyal. You might not be completely sold on the narrative. So we need to bring you in for questioning. You might need to get re-educated. There is, there are other examples of children turning in their parents even. And uh, uh, th- there's also examples of this with uh, modern day COVID where you did have a child that turned in his father for disobeying some sort of random COVID regulation law. I don't remember what it was, but it's the same idea that even children will betray their parents in order to be one with society, in order to fit in with this narrative, in order to go along with what's going on, these types of things. And so that is how society is in unison. That is how there is love among all party members is because the ministry of love will make sure that if there is not love, it will get dealt with immediately and people will be reeducated and they're very effective in this. So with this, you do see this aspect of everyone always being monitored. So again, moving away from these various ministries, um, when we get into 
kind of how this interacts with the everyday life of the citizens. They're always being watched. They're always being monitored. There could be thought police anywhere. Anyone walking by you could be a member of the thought police. And any screen looking at you, which they're everywhere, they could be watching you. They could be making sure that you are having the correct reactions, these types of things. And so uh, this is something that's always in the back of your mind. So it is a very effective measure. As we get into the Panopticon, which I think is the next episode, uh, it's, it's a very uh, much more specific and detailed on this aspect. So I'll save most of it for that. But it's this idea of always being watched and monitored, and therefore it changes the way you act and behave. And the same is true online, where, uh, for example, if you know that what you post on Facebook is going to get seen by a lot of people, and you know the type of people that are going to see what you post on there, that might alter how you might uh, describe something, or what you might share, or how you might uh, filter your... um, basically how you present something, whether it's positive or negative or whatever, uh, you might alter that depending on your audience, depending on who's going to see it. And if you know that absolutely everything you post online will end up getting seen and can be seen by anyone, then that's where you're really going to make sure that what you post is not going to be something that is going to come back to haunt you, that's going to come back against you. So in a sense, it's self-censorship because of the monitoring that's going on. There's a lot of people that self-censor on YouTube, Twitter, podcasts, things like this, where they won't use um, the word vaccine or COVID-19 or a lot of the ones I've used today. Uh, I'm small enough that doesn't really affect me, but especially a lot of bigger channels and outlets, they won't use those specific words. They'll have code words or they'll kind of talk around the word so that they don't get picked up on the algorithm and don't get censored. So they are self-censoring themselves in some way in order to avoid the system cracking down on them because they know that everything is monitored. It all gets run through an algorithm. Um, Everything that they do is going to be seen and assessed, and there may be a reaction, which might not be a positive one. In 1984, you have this figure of Big Brother, and Big Brother is basically the one in charge. Now, we don't really know if it's a real person or if it's a real position or not. Who knows? And in reality, it really doesn't matter. But There is this expert at the top. There is this leader that we follow. Big Brother is the face of the system, the face of the party. And Big Brother is idealized in every way and looked up to in every way. And this is similar to how um, the tech entrepreneurs are looked at, where they are idealized. They came up from nothing. They um, had great success. They are very wealthy. They're very smart and intelligent and have all these plans and want such good things for society and you know, all these positive things. They're idealized in this type of way, in a similar way that Big Brother is idealized in 1984, even though people don't really know a lot about Big Brother, don't even really know if he exists even, I would say with tech entrepreneurs, we know that they exist, but um, there are a lot of aspects where we don't really know their real plans or their real intentions or their real desires. And a lot of times what they say doesn't match up with those things, and that gets found out later. But regardless... In general, they are still idealized as um, being very positive role models, good leaders, good experts. And that's part of this shift towards a more formal technocracy is this idea of trusting the experts. These tech entrepreneurs, especially the leaders of big tech, would be these experts. And as we shift into um, belief and faith and 
uh, trust in these experts, then we shift into more control by the technocracy than by the other formal governance systems, the governments, so to say. And so that is the shift into technocracy by idealizing those that represent the technocracy, the technological system, and that's just part of the game. And in doing so, it draws people in even more, makes people even more dedicated, it gives them drive, it gives them motivation to follow the system, to be a part of the system, to um, improve and expand the system, these types of things. Now, another thing they do in 1984 is catch the children when they're young, and they ingrain them in the system. They make them indoctrinated into believing that the system is all that is good and well. The system will provide for all your needs. The system is what we all work for. We are all a part of this society. We all love each other. We are all going to do what's best. And what is best is following the rules, uh, being in line with the system, these types of things. And this is taught at a very young age to the children. The children and the indoctrinated masses then push out and demonize any outliers to what they have been taught and indoctrinated into. So that this is very similar to what goes on in today's world. And I've talked about that aspect a lot, about things uh, being more in line with social pressure than formal legal pressure. And so what happens is that People are taught to think a certain way, to have a certain worldview. This is something that many people have been calling out for decades, especially in the university system, but also currently in regards to things like critical race theory, um, sexuality being taught to very young children in elementary school, uh, these types of things. They're being indoctrinated into having a certain worldview, into a certain uh, perspective, into believing certain things, and they're all in line with the system, quote. And so that would be uh, something different. It's uh, the party is not the system. It's the technocracy. But part of the technocracy, like I talked about in the previous series on secular religions, it is those secular religions, are those secular religions. So you have the Church of Woke, you have a statism, and you also have scientism. These are the things that people are getting indoctrinated into. And a lot of it starts with the children, and they catch them when they're young. Then as they grow up, they influence everybody else and everything else. They push out and demonize the outliers. That is what the Church of Woke is currently doing, and that doctrine has been taught for decades. And as the children are getting out of that indoctrination— And as the masses are indoctrinated through mass media, through the internet, through big tech, then you start to see that there is this differentiation between the new inverted world order of the Church of Woke and the previous uh, version of morality, the previous worldview of previous ages. And so this is a big difference, and it is one that does get pushed a lot by our version of the Ministry of Truth, and this is true, but at the same time, in doing so, it then uh, perpetuates itself through the individuals that have been indoctrinated, and they perpetuate the system uh, on their own. It's kind of like the self-censorship, but the opposite. Instead of uh, just censoring what they think, what they say, uh, they are now projecting the positive side. So that would be the negative side. The positive side is pushing out the propaganda towards others. It's calling out others. It's turning people in to the ministry of love for wrong think. And this would be any thoughts that go against basically the party or the narrative. 
and this happens in today's world. People get called out um, by their jobs, by their schools, by their friends, whatever, if they have wrong think, if they say something or think something that is uh, contrary to the narrative that the majority of people believe, then they are the outliers that get demonized, that get pushed out, get called out for wrong think and turned in to the ministry of love or get turned into the censorship algorithms, however that may exist, depending on the platform. This is what happens. Now, through propaganda, social engineering, and focused advertising, individuals are turned against even their loved ones, but also against each other. So again, like Machiavelli's The Prince, the idea is to cause division, to divide people up into factions that then fight each other, because that is uh, much more, much easier to control. It's the divide and conquer type strategy. And this is what happens here. But it's it's not just about pitting these individuals against each other in 1984. The party now has dominance. So they've already done this to the extent that they are the 99%. They just have to make sure that they control that 1%. And they do this by making sure that anybody that is out of line um, gets immediately dealt with, uh, just like Machiavelli recommended for any well-controlled society. And uh, this, again, goes to the extent of people's own loved ones. They will turn in their parents or their children because it's what's best. It's overall even what's best for those individuals, even in reality when it's not. Um, Another interesting aspect with 1984 is that there is this new language called Newspeak. And the idea of Newspeak is that it's the only language in history that has gotten smaller as time goes on. So they're removing words, and uh, the remaining words have multiple meanings. But the whole point of Newspeak is that you start weeding out words, uh, basically ideas and concepts, but through the words themselves, that aren't in line with the party. So anything that promotes rebellion or something contrary to what the party wants or what the narrative says, those words get weeded out of the language. So they no longer exist. So even if you had this uh, idea or concept of dissent, you don't even have words to describe it. And so uh, it is this way of censoring ideas through access to these ideas, through the language, the content that people hear You steer people's thoughts and their beliefs by controlling the language, by changing definitions, by censoring information. All of these kinds of things are brought together through this idea of Newspeak. Now, in 1984, Newspeak is not wide-ranging. It is something that is a new burgeoning um, language. It's not something that has really taken hold, but it will. And we see that it is starting to really gain traction in 1984. It's kind of the latest fad, and it is uh, beginning pushed. Now, with Newspeak, again, the idea is that the language is small. There are fewer words, and therefore, you're weeding out the ones that you don't want to be seen. It's similar to the idea of posts versus long-form content. And so when you see something like Twitter or Facebook or any of the big tech platforms, even YouTube, a lot of the content is fairly short. And with it being short, 
there is not the ability to express complex uh, discussions and ideas and concepts because you just don't have the space to do that. You can't do that in the hundred and whatever characters it is on Twitter. You just can't do it. If you write a whole paragraph or two or three or four on Facebook, hardly anybody's going to read it because that's not how that platform is is organized. That's not what it does. That's not how people interact with it. And so in doing so, we have the technocracy, we have big tech, we have the technological system uh, changing things such that language and discussion and ideas and concepts are put forth with smaller numbers of words and with more censored content in order to bring people more in line with the narrative. Again, it's it's the same thing. It's this idea of emojis where you have these little pictures where instead of telling someone, oh, good job today, and you might say something positive, you just give a thumbs up. And it's a very, very shortened version of what you might have said otherwise. And the same is true of so many other things. You have all these abbreviations, you have emojis, it's the uh, making the language smaller. It is shrinking the language into something, again, that can be more controlled. There, there is a thing, seems really weird to me personally, but a thing every year about what new emojis are going to be added by Apple or whatever platform or tech organization, whatever. And so it's this idea of, you know, what words will they allow? What words are we going to have access to? Because we only have a very limited number, and that's going to stay limited. But we're going to have a few more here and there to fit, again, with the narrative. It's going to be something related to uh, someone that's gay or someone that's black or Asian or, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's either race or sexuality or any of these hot button topics, these are going to be what are promoted the most because there is a certain narrative, because you have the Church of Woke gaining a lot of dominance here. And so all of this is similar to the strategy of Newspeak that is starting to get put in place in 1984, and it is starting to get put in place in our current modern world. Now, with 1984... They are living in a post-industrial society. And with this, uh, the society could theoretically produce all the goods that it needs in order to have, uh, basically for everybody to have a wonderful life and to have everything they could ever want or desire. But instead of this, because if you have that, then people are harder to control. They don't have the fear, the want, the need. Um, They don't look to the party or to the system in order to provide these things for them and to protect them, these types of things. So what is done instead is that all of the extra resources are funneled to war and destruction. So you make a multi-million dollar rocket, you either just stockpile it, or you use it in some random conflict on the other side of the world, it blows up, and then bam, you just had $50 million dollars worth of labor, material, whatever, just disappear. It's gone. And um, in addition to that, whatever it hit and blew up is also gone. So resources are just disappearing through this act of war and destruction. And so it is a way to channel all of these extra resources and funds and finances and intellectual capability. You funnel it all into war and destruction, or at least all the excess, so that that excess is not able to be divided up to the rest of society and the population because that would give them more leisure time. Plato talks about this as well. But if if someone only has to work, say, 
10 hours a week, then they can spend a lot more time on improving themselves. They will pay more attention to what's going on around them more likely. They are going to probably be more, I guess, probably more prone to critical thinking and things like this. And they're going to have the things that they want. They're going to have the things that they need. So they are probably not going to rely as much on the system. They're probably not going to look to the system to provide all of their things because they already have them. And one very effective tool for control is fear and it is controlling resources. Again, this is the Ministry of Plenty. That's what they do. And these ministries are tied together. In this example, the Ministry of Plenty with the Ministry of Peace. And that is how this society is controlled. Now, with this, you have this fear of war. And they use this fear of war to increase loyalty, to make sure that people are in line. Again, they're scared. They want protection. They turn to the party. And again, that's what gets done today. Typically, in America, when a Republican is in pre- is the president and they are in the presidency, then there is this enemy overseas. There's terrorists. There's bad things. We need to go and take care of them and take them out or else you know, they're going to take us out. And there's this fear that, oh, we need to be more involved with warfare because of this. When a Democrat is in office, oftentimes that is pointed inwards and you have more of a push on domestic terrorism and there are all these problems internally. We need to crack down on things internally. But no matter what, there's always fear. There's always something to worry about. It's cybersecurity. It's a virus. It's war. It's terrorism, whatever it is. And typically, it's an intangible thing, which makes it so much more effective. You can't get rid of terrorism. That's not something you can defeat. It's not an entity. Neither is uh, basically viruses as a whole. You can't get rid of sickness. That is not going to happen. That's not something that you can do. You are not going to uh, get rid of a lot of these things, dissent in general. And when you make the enemy this intangible thing that you can never conquer, then you can have something that people are always scared of because you ramp up the fear deliberately and it will never get solved. So they're always going to rely on the system and become more and more um, in line with it. And when they are socially ostracized, then that will basically detour them from wanting to go against the narrative or the mainstream, because if they do, then they get turned into the ministry of love or they are censored or whatever the case may be. And so between the fear and the reliance, and the social pressure that make it makes this uh, milieu for conformity and obedience, and it is extremely effective at doing so. They create controlled and monitored opposition as well. So even though there is some dissent, and there are people that wake up, there are people that see the contradictions in 1984. They, the party does have some people that are organized and pretending to be dissenters. And so they can control and monitor any opposition because if someone wakes up and they see that something's wrong, then they will get funneled into this organization of dissidents, which is ultimately controlled by the party. And so they completely control all of the opposition and that gets funneled in to them. I'm not going to talk about it, but um, This Perfect Day is another really good example of this. And that is a book I would highly, highly recommend. It's 
on par at a minimum with 1984 and Brave New World. And so uh, they have this same aspect that I think they make an even better example of. But uh, that's an aspect. The final thing that I'll bring out is the 10 minutes hate. And this is something that really focuses emotions towards a common enemy, towards a common goal. It brings everybody together through this concentrated hate and enmity towards one thing, one entity, one person. And similarly to Big Brother, we don't really know if this enemy that is portrayed is a real character, if they really exist, and really it doesn't matter. What matters is that everybody uh, hates this one person or this one thing or this one idea, and everybody comes together and are united together in opposition to this one thing. And so in doing so, people are part of a common goal. They're a part of something bigger than themselves. They are opposing uh, negative aspects of society. But when this is controlled by the party, then the things that that enemy is portrayed as doing and as promoting are going to be things related to dissent and things that are against the narrative. And so as you channel all of that aggression and negative emotion towards this one face, and that face is now going to represent dissent from the party, then if you have dissent among members, uh, yeah, that's not going to go so well because people, again, have been indoctrinated in this certain way. And that is also something that we have today where people get demonized and you have these examples that really get uh, brought up and become so prominent where you might have stories that can be very similar and things that have happened before and will happen again, but one specific person will get brought up and completely demonized. And in doing so, all the thoughts and concepts and ideas and stories surrounding that person and the people surrounding those persons also get tainted. And so that is something that is used. It's this example of the 10 minutes hate. This is where cancel culture really comes into play in modern times where someone says something or does something that opposes the narrative, that opposes the church of woke, that opposes statism. They get canceled. They get highlighted. They get posted everywhere. Their face gets posted everywhere. Their content gets posted everywhere in a negative fashion. It's Well, it's typically not their content, but their content is referenced in a negative way. Their content itself is then censored. And their face is shown prominently, but what they have to say, their voice is typically censored. And this is just the whole idea of the 10 minutes hate, and that's how it acts in our current the society. This is how things play out. So I, I think that's all the, or those are all of the main points that I had made note of. And uh, there, of course, are so many more. 1984 is extremely uh, pertinent to what is going on in today's world. A great example of technocracy in a material form. And that is what we are in and what is continuing to progress in today's world. So I think it's a great example there. Now, as we move on, I guess the next example is, I am double-checking notes, it is the Panopticon by Jeremy Bentham. I'm actually going back over some of his content currently. I'm reading it, and it is extremely good. I really like it, so um, I think there's a lot of good stuff to pull out of that, and it's a really good way to wrap up these illusions of... uh, The Prince, 1984, and then wrap it up with Panopticon, really will draw a great picture of 
early stage technocracy, of material technocracy as it is taking form, what it's going to do, what it is doing, how it functions, these types of things. It should become very clear after going through all of these examples, and then it will give a good contrast to what's coming up after this, to the next set of illusions, and that would be Plato's Brave New World Foundation. So it's uh, Plato's Republic, Huxley's Brave New World, and Asimov's Foundation series. And in between, I'll make some connections because there are many aspects of this first set of illusions that I'm covering right now that get... I guess they they change and they evolve into ones that fit with the next set of illusions. So this first set is more material. It is more formalized, hierarchical, evident, these types of things. The next one is more immaterial. But something like Newspeak, for example, when Newspeak becomes prominent, when it becomes the main language or the only language spoken that is a different form of control than it how it is in its infancy in the book 1984. The same is true of the Panopticon. The literal prison that is built, the literal building of the Panopticon, is very different than that concept being applied to society writ large in a technological, immaterial way. And so there are different aspects that Uh, The way they are portrayed in these specific writings I'm talking about, 1984, Panopticon, and The Prince, that as they evolve, they become more immaterial and more in line with the following set of illusions. And so there'll be a very good tie-in and a... Uh, a blending of the two. And so I'll talk about that, about the evolution of this first set, and that will bring us into the next set of illusions there. So that is all that I have for today. I greatly appreciate all of the support. Thank you very much for uh, the patrons that are supporting financially and giving money to help me produce this content, to make the show, to buy the resources and books and an audible Uh, subscription and all of these kinds of things, pay for hosting, all that. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. If you have not done so and you've ever considered it, please do. That would be wonderful. The more support I can get, the more I can do with it because I directly use it for this podcast, period. I don't just try to make money myself. This is not a money-making venture. So the more support I get, the more I can do with it. And I would like to do more with this show. I'd like to be able to do more with it. So Thank you very much. If you have not left a rating or a review in general, please do so. That really helps get the show out there and promotes it and draws in more people. And thank you just overall for listening. Uh, that's probably the number one thing you can do to support this show is to listen to it because that is the whole point of this show. And so thank you very much. If you have any questions or feedback or anything at all, please email me. That is rfoundations at protonmail.com and I can get you any information or I would just really enjoy hearing your feedback and things you have to say. So thank you very much. I'm out of here. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.